lines. Long lines of people snaking down sidewalks, some with their hands in their pockets, some chatting with friends, some scrolling endlessly on their phones. The air buzzes with excitement and generally people are patient with one another and they find common ground, something to chat about while they're in that line. Now this is the type of line that you find when there is a new Star Wars movie released, right? Or when Apple produces yet another phone. Or at Starbucks when pumpkin spice lattes come back on the menu. These are happy lines of happy people. There are other long lines as well that we encounter. Lines where people stand with their arms crossed and they're scowling and they're tapping their toes. They don't apologize when they bump into someone. They get gruff when someone bumps into them. They huff and they puff and they generally make themselves obnoxious. This type of line can be found at pretty much any store that participates in Black Friday or at the pharmacy when everyone is giving the side eye to the guy who's coughing in line or at the post office on December 23rd. This is a line of cranky folk. There's another kind of line, one of quiet and diligent expectation. We saw these lines after 9-11 at blood banks. People lined up for hours to help. You will see this line of quiet and diligent expectation if you come and serve with us at the Boulder Homeless Shelter and serve a meal. Quiet expectation. People waiting. Lines. I'm not a huge fan of lines. The British have a fun name for lines, don't they? A queue, right? We don't call them a line, they call it a queue. Which is ironic because it's really just a queue with a bunch of silent letters waiting in a line. <laughs> waiting in a queue, waiting in a line, it can be a joy and it can be a pain and it depends almost entirely on what you are waiting for. And so today I want to pick up a thread, a line, as it were, through history and mystery that we talked about last week to the story of Jesus in Luke 1 at verse 26. So we're going to explore this morning three parts. And before you think, oh, Pastor Jen gets stuck in a rut and all we're ever going to hear are three-part sermons. No, I wrote this series and I wrote them all together, so they have three parts because it's a series, so brace yourselves for the next couple of weeks, but that's not always gonna be the truth, okay? So bear with me. But if you have your Bibles, we're gonna start in Luke chapter one and verse 26 this morning as we explore the place, the person, and the perseverance in the story of the announcement of the birth of our Savior. Will you pray with me? God on high, we are so grateful to be here in your presence this morning. And we ask once again that you renew us and refresh us. May we look at this word with new eyes today because you are here with us teaching us. Inspire us again, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Read with me, if you will, Luke 1 and verse 26. For those of you who are using our brand new pew Bibles, I might do a little dance. Mm, no, it's in church, never mind. Um, it's page 1016, Luke 1, 26. Brand new Bibles, and we are so excited to have them. Uh, feel free to use them as needed. Uh, it's Luke 1, 26. And in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. Last week, Luke started with politics, which we know is always a dangerous place to start. Today, he starts with geography. Two notes about this verse. The first note is that Gabriel shows up in the narrative for the second time. We've seen him before in Jerusalem, speaking with Zechariah, explaining that the prayers for a Messiah, the hope of Israel had been answered, and the, the indication that the Messiah was on his way were gonna be fulfilled, was going to be fulfilled by, by Zechariah's own son, John. That John, his son, would be the way maker for a snake crusher. Point one. Gabriel shows up again. Point two, Luke gets into the details about where Gabriel shows up. The city, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. The place of the pronouncement of the Messiah's arrival is a little town called Nazareth. Now, I have family that lives in Texas. And when people ask where, I'll tell them my family lives near Fort Worth. And they will look at me eagerly and say, oh yeah, where? And I'll say, Granberry. And they will look at me blankly and say, where? Because Granberry is a tiny town in the middle of not much, just past the edge of nowhere. Right? So when Luke says a city of Galilee, a region in the northern part of Israel, he's giving a reference point for a town of no consequence. It's north. Nazareth is nowhere. The region helped pinpoint a little bit the geography. It would be north, but Nazareth was a blip on the map. It was nothing special. Nazareth isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. Genesis to Malachi, nothing. It doesn't show up in the Apocrypha. And Josephus, the historian, doesn't speak of it either. Nazareth is nowhere. The country of Israel, of course, extended beyond Jerusalem in every direction. Galilee is to the north in Israel, but Galilee itself wasn't often spoken of with fondness. Most often, it was referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. It was referred pejoratively as Galilee of the Gentiles. It was an area that had many non-Jewish residents, and the region was bordered by non-Israelite territories. It was not considered a godly, holy place. Even though it was part of Israel, it wasn't really included. There, the people, even the Jews, were viewed with a bit of skepticism, maybe a little bit of the old side eye. Are you really a believer if you live so far from the center of your religious home? Can you be? 
Now, some famous and dearly loved prophets were associated with Galilee, but it still had this sketchy reputation. Jonah, Jonah was a Galilean. Elijah and Elisha were familiar with Galilee, but, but it wasn't considered truly Israel. It was kind of a mission, kind of a place where we sent the evangelists, a place where people would go because God was missing there, where the news of God was in short supply and the people didn't quite get it. Nazareth was in the north of Israel, but the south of Galilee. And it was a long way from Jerusalem, about 70 miles. So without cars, without any sort of transport, foot or, or animal would be it. It was a bit of a journey. So not only was Galilee, the region, insignificant, it seems that no one of the day thought much of Nazareth either. John, in John chapter 1, verses 43 to 46. John records an incident there with Philip, right? And Philip has just met Jesus, and he says, come and see, we have found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael responds to Philip, and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So the details that Luke gives us of the place matter. When we step back into the narrative of Luke 1, it's this backwater, God-forsaken town that the angel Gabriel comes to with the news that the Messiah is on the way. It's a place that has been forgotten. It is unloved. It's dismissed and scorned and derided. But if God has a plan for a place, no place is insignificant. God bears no prejudice about our origins either. He isn't disgusted by the place of our birth. He isn't laughing at the place we call home. He doesn't ask if anything good can come from Texas. Our place may not be significant from anyone, for anyone, or to anyone, except God. When I was growing up, I used to hear stories of church members who would go to the theater to watch a movie, and deans from some colleges would sit outside the theaters and watch who was coming. And if you were at the theater, if you were caught, you were in trouble. You could get suspended, you'd have to pay a fine, various things would happen to you. Because association with that place was considered dangerous, right? You were putting yourselves in harm's way if you were gonna go to a place like a movie theater. Some people would say that guardian angels would not cross the threshold, and so if you would go into a theater, you were leaving your angel behind and leaving yourself exposed. Let's be clear. Danger doesn't come from a place. There is no movie theater God will not join you in. God's promise to be with his people wherever they are extends to our, our workplaces, our homes, restaurants, our schools, even our churches. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, means that wherever you go, God is present. And even when no one thinks anything of merit can come from Nazareth, or Longmont, or Erie, or Canada. If God has a plan for a place, 
it will come to pass. So this is where we're gonna stop and examine just for a minute our own bias against places. Where do we limit God by saying, can anything good come from fill in the blank? Maybe it's any of the countries around the world right now that are hemorrhaging refugees. Maybe it's Detroit or LA or a region of the world whose religion is different than my own and I'm afraid and I think nothing good can come from there. The things that I'm comfortable with, I tend to embrace. But God is not asking about our comfort. He is asking that we trust him. And if he has picked a place, there is a reason. Where do we limit God and miss out on seeing his plans come to pass because our prejudice prevents us from seeing the good? Can anything good come from Nazareth? When God chooses a place, our bias alone can stop us from witnessing the blessing. Can you imagine many missed out on Jesus because they couldn't get past where he was born? They couldn't get past where he was raised. They couldn't get past home. Luke tells us to beware of our bias against the place. Little places like Nazareth. Because in places we cannot fathom, God is still at work. Matthew Henry puts it very well when he says this, no distance or disadvantage of place shall be a prejudice to those for whom God has favors in store. And that I've spelled favors as Matthew Henry would have, you're welcome, Japheth. Right? The people in the places we ignore, we deride, we belittle, we denigrate, will not suffer our bias. God has favor in store. And one such recipient of that favor was Mary. And and though we call her Mary, and in many of our modern interpretations, we call her Mary, if we look back at the original text, her name was Miriam. Do you guys ever know that? I was looking back in, I know, I was looking in the Greek, which is a miracle that I was looking in the Greek, because it's not my favorite language. But we were looking back, and it's Miriam. She goes by Miriam. But I will refer to her as Mary, because otherwise it gets confusing, right? So in the, original, in the original text in her name, she was called Miriam, the same as the sister of Moses, an integral figure in Israelite history. So here she is in backwater nowhere Israel, being named after one of the most famous and revered women of Israelite history. This girl from nowhere, she doesn't matter. She still has a deep connection to the line that God has drawn out through history. So there's a connection to the rich promises of God by name for this young woman. She isn't connected to God's promises by place, but she is connected by history. 
Just as Miriam watched the plagues unfold, the sea split, water pour from a rock, manna fall from the sky, so Mary is going to get to watch the fulfillment of the promises of God. Gabriel gives her a message that starts differently than most messages from divine messengers. Most of them start out as Sandy pointed out during kids' life. How do most messages from angels of God start? Oh, the kids did better. Say again? Fear not, or do not be afraid, right? Fear not. Okay, and here in Luke 1, verse 28, read with me. Gabriel is speaking to Mary, and he says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, Mary, as young as she was, she has some wisdom. In verse 29, her, her reaction is noted. She doesn't verbalize anything here, but her reaction is noted. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. When angels show up, they don't usually compliment the person they're speaking to. They almost always say, fear not, as the means of greeting people, which I think I'm gonna start trying when I meet new people. <laughs> but instead of a fear not, Mary gets a compliment. She's favored and God is with her. Now one of my favorite websites is called Daily Odd Compliment. It doesn't seem to be active anymore, which is tragic, because it was absolutely hilarious. Um, and it frankly made you wonder at the nature of compliments. For example, there's this gem. Uh, you have an incredible knack for turning any conversation into an awkward one. Right? These gems are highly polished. They're brilliant compliments. So if we take a step back, when we hear a compliment like this, right, you can make any conversation awkward. Good job. We take a step back and I think, did I hear that right? Is it really a compliment? And that's what Mary does. She hears really beautiful words spoken about herself from God. And she takes a step back and she wrestles with it. She doesn't accept it initially. It's not an arrogance that drives her. Can you imagine if he said, greetings, oh favored one, and she was like, yeah, that's me. Right? She is troubled by what she's hearing. She's favored and God is with her? You see, Mary herself doesn't see the value of who she is. She doesn't see herself as one of great status. She doesn't see herself as one of worthy of great attention. Least of all from God. So this gets awkward real quick with Gabriel. And it's humbling, isn't it? To be told by God that you are favored and he is present. It's stunning. Because hearing God favors you is awe-inspiring and shocking. The greatest, most powerful being ever is sending a messenger 
to tell you that you have been seen and you are chosen. Mary wisely doesn't argue. If any of you do the Enneagram, she's not a type eight. She would have argued if she was an eight. She doesn't argue. Instead, she asks some really wise questions about the rest of the message that Gabriel delivers, right? He tells her, you're going to have a son. He's going to be the savior of his people. And she, um, she has some good questions like, uh, yeah, how's that going to happen? And he explains it to her. And then she accepts the call of God to bear the Messiah. She chooses the path for her life based on a request of God sent through Gabriel. And her yes changes the course of everything. A careful, thoughtful woman says yes to God and Jesus comes to set the record straight. Like Mary, we have the privilege of hearing, as Zephaniah says, God singing over us. We need to hear his song in our lives that we are favored and he is with us. When we hear that truth, what is our reaction? Because we could become very arrogant. Look at how great I'm living. God has seen me. He must know how righteous I am. Yay, me. Pat me on the back, Gabriel. Let's go. We could shrink away and hide from the weight of love and grace that can sometimes feel like it will crush us because it is so overwhelming. We could hide our faith and refuse to reach out beyond ourselves, but possibly like Mary, we will be troubled when we realize this truth that we are favored, chosen, and God is with us. Because when we're honest, we know our reality, don't we? We know our mess, we know our hurt, we know our fragility, we know our dishonesty before God, and to have God claim us as his favored one is humbling and shocking, and it shakes the core of who we are. Maybe we too will ask wise questions and get as much a scope on the picture as we possibly can in preview. And maybe, 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 maybe we will say yes to God too. And let's be clear, our yes that acknowledges all that God has done for us to save us is merely the first yes. When I realize what God has done, I realize his plan of salvation, I realize that it has come to pass, that he has sent the Savior, and I say yes to that, that is the first yes. It doesn't stop there. It's a repeated acceptance of God's guidance that we need throughout our lives. And those yeses will change everything. I was going to do marketing and public relations. I have a cousin who's very um, good at what she does. She paid cash for her first house on the coast of California. Hmm. The dream for me. God changed the dream. 
because I said yes. For Mary, it brought a lifetime of being an outsider. The grief of never really fitting in, of never having the close-knit safety of people who believe you. A lifetime of being the mother with the odd child. The yes Mary gave changed her life. Sometimes we try to sell each other the lie that letting, in, letting Jesus into our lives will make it all easy. I'm going to say that again. Sometimes we sell each other the lie that letting Jesus into our lives will make it all easy. And that simply isn't true. Mary's life didn't get easier, even though she said yes to God. Life is enriched, absolutely expanded. Yes, hope blossoms and blooms and grows and salvation is full and free when we know Jesus, absolutely. But that doesn't make it easy. It gives it value and purpose and meaning. Our lives have depth, but it doesn't mean they will be without obstacle. And Mary discovers that after her yes. We don't know how much time Mary had to make this decision, to be a part of this master plan. What we do know is that she chose to say yes. God asks people to choose to be a part of a greater plan, a divine plan, and he chooses people who are curious and wise, impulsive and earnest, reckless and passionate. He chooses people like me and you he asks people to partner with him to make hope live. So beloved, we who are curious and wise, impulsive and earnest, reckless and passionate, what will our response to God be? A one-time yes or a lifetime of yeses? Now, like Elizabeth, Mary would have a rough go in life. Elizabeth had her heartbreak early, right? In the years that she could have been raising children, she was barren. But she remained intent on knowing God and serving him. And she was known as a woman of great faith, even though she, thought she was thought to be cursed because she couldn't have kids. On the other hand... Mary's faith would be proven after a child was born. Mary didn't give up her faith when people treated her poorly or when questions about her morality were raised, when the eyebrows came into town. To pursue God when prayers are answered immediately is faith. To pursue God when prayers appear to be ignored is also faith. To remain in dialogue, in community, in process, whether it be of events or ideas, is to persevere, is to hold on despite indication that success may never come. It is to hold on despite the path being difficult. 
God is ready for people to diligently persevere despite obstacles. And he found two such people in Elizabeth and in Mary. Perseverance, the holding on despite not seeing the success, the holding on despite it being difficult, will give us the gumption, as it were, to say, as Mary did, if you'll look with me, in Mary's response to the angels, she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. As we end, having looked at the wonder of place and the power of people and the need to persevere, there's a story that comes to mind. It's a story from Texas. In January of 2015, a young man named George Pickering III, it's really his name, isn't it fabulous? George Pickering III had a stroke. Now the odd thing is, is that George was in his mid-20s when he had this stroke. He was rushed to the hospital, and in the hospital, the doctors and staff said he has no brain activity. He's gone. We would like to terminate care. We have called the organ donations uh, coordination team. We would like to harvest his organs and move on. He is gone. His dad, George II, uh, was there and adamantly refused now, not all of this story is excellent. George II refused with gun in hand and barred the door to the hospital room for the doctors. It got a little cray-cray, okay? But after a three-hour standoff with George II standing in the hospital room advocating for his son, he, he's speaking to his son and he's squeezing his hand and he keeps saying, George, you gotta respond. George, you gotta respond. George, squeeze my hand. George, squeeze my hand. After three hours, his son started to squeeze his hand on command, squeeze, do it again, squeeze, do it again, squeeze. As time passed and the standoff continued, he responded more and more regularly. And in a few weeks, George III went home. And today is alive and well in Houston, Texas. Dad served 11 months in prison for his behavior. He says this to this day, his dad saved his life, and this is how he puts it. There was a law broken, but it was broken for all the right reasons. And I'm here now because of it. It was love. It was love. The love of a father. While no laws of logic or reason were broken when God shipped Jesus to earth. It was the reigning law of love that sent angels to faithful people in places far, far away. And it is the law of love that today asks us to seek God in all the places, with all the people so the kingdom may come here, now. May we, his chosen favored ones, respond faithfully as Mary did so long ago. I am the servant of God. 
May it be to me according to God's word. Amen.